welcome back to Psychology on the Cross. There's been a bit of a longer break this time as I'm finishing the manuscript for a book on Jungian Christianity that is built on the conversations I had in the last years. In today's conversation, I will speak to Martin Liebscher from the Philemon Foundation. Martin is a research fellow at the German department and an honorary senior lecturer at the Center for the History of Psychological Disciplines at the University College of London. We discussed the recently published book, Jung on Ignatius of Loyola's Spiritual Exercises, the lectures that Jung delivered at the ETH in Zurich between June 1939 and November 1940. Martin begins by contextualizing these lectures in Jung's life and theory building and gives an overview of Jung's activities in the 1930s. We discuss why this turn west and to European spirituality happened at this time before diving into the visions of St. Loyola and Jung's interpretation of these. We also discuss the work of Jesuit priest, philosopher and theologian Erich Chevara, of whose writing about the exercises Jung built much of these lectures. Weaved into the conversations are also two of the most important visions of Jung. One from Christmas Day of 1913, where he identifies with being Christ on the cross, and the second vision of Christ on the cross that he had while writing on the spiritual exercises in the late 1930s. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your background, Martin, and your academic work. If you could share a little bit about how it came about that you started researching CGU. Yes, thank you very much. That goes back to my studies at the University of Vienna with the theologian and philosopher Jörg Salakwader, where I did my PhD on uh, Nietzsche. Jörg Salakwader was a renowned Nietzsche expert and uh, coming from philosophy, I wanted to do my PhD thesis on Nietzsche and, and Schopenhauer and uh, ended up with a seminar on Nietzsche's Zarathustra that he held from 1934 to 1939. So that was my first interest, academic interest in, in Jung. From there, I went to London, where I continued my research. I had a particular interest at that time on the conceptual history of the unconscious and worked together with colleagues in the area, amongst them Sono Shandasani. And Sono and I, we had a common interest in history of analytical psychology and my, my research on Jung uh, was particularly focused on the 1930s. So, and at that time, he was looking for someone to do the correspondence between Erich Neumann and Zeke Jung. And of course, that was my interest, that was my area. And so that period, um, Neumann had to leave Germany and went to Zürich and then left, trained with Jung and left for Tel Aviv. That, that was my interest. That was my area that to the 1930s. So uh, he asked me if I would be interested to do the, to edit the correspondence for the Philemon Foundation. So that's how I ended up with the Philemon. Uh, following up from that, after five years I did on, on that project, partially for the Philemon, but I'm also a lecturer at the University of London and then later in University College London. Following up from that, I started to, to edit the, the lectures, the DH lectures of Jung, of course, similar period again. So we talk from 1933 to 1941, but that is, of course, a project that is much larger than the correspondence between Neumann and Jung. So it was a project that was done in conjunction with the with Hans Falceda in, in Austria, Christopher Wagner, a colleague in Scotland, and Sono, of course. So 
We originally split the work up into two parts. I, Ernst Falzeda would do the first volumes and I would then look and did the volume on yoga and meditation, psychology of yoga and meditation, 38, 39, followed by St. Ignatius and the spiritual exercises, 39, 1914. Yeah, and uh, together with Christopher Wagner, I have now finished the the 1941 lectures on the alchemy and the volume that comes before that. But these three volumes, so the psychology of yoga meditation, the spiritual exercises, and the final one, the final lecture series on alchemy, they can be read together. So we have all of them in the brackets of human interest of the process of individuation. And it compares the pro-psychological process of individuation and the practice of active imagination with Eastern meditative practices and traditions, with the exercises, with alchemy and hermetic philosophy, and this kind of that are that have a certain kind of development from one level to spiritual development through the process of meditation, but then to the process of active imagination and the individuation process on the different levels that Jung was interested to theorize his students with. And mm. um, Jung in the 1930s, you having spent so much time with his theoretical works and, and what he really wrestled with them and brought on that decade. In the 1930s, it's quite charged politically and in Europe with national socialism on the rise and leading up to the Second World War. I'm wondering, who is this Jung that we meet in the 30s? What can you say about him? You're going to go into the theoretical works, but I'm just sort of placing Jung. He's 55 plus. Uh, in the beginning of that decade. Can, can you just share a little bit about how you see Jung in that time? Obviously, he was very active. Yeah, no, that's, that was my, my very original interest in, in Jung. So the historical context in which the, the seminar on Nietzsche-Tartustra is held. And I was interested to what extent the, the concepts that he's talking there in this seminar on a weekly basis and his theories undergo a certain kind of development that might be shaped by the personal as well as global global development. So and of course Jung at that time, you know Hitler came to power in 1933 in, in, in Germany was at the time just in coming from a trip to Palestine and to the Mediterranean. He came back. He was informed that Schmeier had just resigned as the president of the Argument Organization for Psychotherapy because of the very prominent German group that was then affiliated with the National Socialist Agenda. So the Jung, then the vice president, was asked to take over. Later on, he became the president of that. This, All of this is well known and documented. We know that in the first edition of the Zeitschrift that the society published, some the German allegiance to National Socialism was printed in this in the general. It was only meant to be for the German edition, but it was then published, or printed in the international edition with Jung's inaugural presentation and that text. And that also was very unfortunate to say the least that at that time Jung also started to think about archetypes and racial differences, for which he was very heavily criticized by Gustav Barney in the Neue Zürcher Zeitung. And lots of people were 
tried to defend Jung, amongst others, Erich Neumann, so he was quite shocked to read what, what Jung said. Then, so this is the kind of political beginning of that period. He wrote then an article in 1936 on Wotan, well known, where he tried to give an explanation for the developments in Germany. So how archetypal theory can explain a collective movement as the one that happens in German, Germany. And he says that Christianity had, was planted on the remains of the Germanic faith and, and therefore it was that the, the Germans would be uprooted, had been uprooted because of this enforced Christianity upon them and that would now come back that we can see in the emergence of Wotan. So that was basically his idea. He also said that it was the it was Nietzsche and Zarathustra who foresaw all of that already in some in some pictures and images that he had as well as as in dreams that we know from from his time, from his sister when he was young. Then, so this is the political thing. Then, for us, interesting, of course, is the is the is the ETH lectures. So, after twenty years of not lecturing and not being involved in academic teaching, he comes back to the ETH. Catherine hasn't first taught at the University of Zurich, but now at the ETH in the Freifächer section, so the free subjects for technical students. Mm -hmm. He's teaching there from 1933 to 41, as I said. He's internationally successful. He's nice, renowned at that time. Yeah, what else can we say about the 1930s? It is, in a way, in his theoretical thinking, we have the end of the 1920s and therefore somehow the end of the active work on the Liber Novus. So now, in 28-29, he starts to work together with Richard Wilhelm. That is his first interest, on this first, but this is where his interest in alchemy starts to get, a, get hold of him. He's then, during the 1934-1935 Eranos lectures, he starts to introduce his audience, his followers, to his interest into alchemy. He's also then, 36, 1977, he starts to write a book on, on alchemy and the CCG motif, which I'm just working on and hopefully will be, will come out soon. Yeah, this interest in alchemy, that this change of, of focus is going to India in the 1938 and his, yeah, and then he takes with him chemical and alchemical text. So it's uh, somehow the, the interesting moment where he goes to India for three months and is actually working the alchemical notebooks. So he's taking notes from, from alchemical texts while he's going through India. But then in the midst of these notebooks, we suddenly find Indian drawings, observations from the temples he's, he's observing. So that is, there's this, that we, we're talking about today about Eastern and Western spirituality. There's this interest that we have seen in the, in the lecture series from Eastern meditation to alchemy. And at the same time, we have the Aranos conferences from 1933 onwards, where the idea of the dialogue between Eastern and Western spirituality is central. And the idea came from Jung at the end of the day. So when you talk to Olga Fulberg Kaptein, so... That is a, a new interest. It's a change, not, not a change in a way, but it is a new focus that we can say in the 1930s, it's taking what he, what he has done so far 
putting it into a new frame and uh, some of the outlook to his work, then psychology of alchemy, Mysterium Conjunctionis, to the later Jung. So therefore, these 1930s are theoretically one of the most interesting decades. But also it's a decade where he does not manage to write a monograph on its own. So it is, maybe it was too busy, but it also is the idea that it was a very fluid time. So he tried to write this book, but it is a, it is a fragment and it finishes after 100 pages. If we go into what I thought we would focus on today, a discussion on the lectures that Jung did at ETH from June 1939 to November 1940 on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. I know that you're not a theologian or an expert necessary in St. Ignatius of Loyola, but, but could you say something short about him and these exercises, just to give context for those who listen, who might not be as familiar with his ideas. As you said, I'm not a, I'm not a, a theologian, so I'm, I wrote my PhD with theologians at the theological faculty. That was, that was interesting at the time. But yes, well, first maybe to say why Jung came, came to talk about Ignatius of Loyola, maybe. As, as we said before, in the lecture, in the previous lecture series, he was interested in, what we can call it, Eastern meditation. He looked at the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. He looked at uh, the Amitayo Dhyana Sutra, um, the Buddhist text and Tantric text. And he says, oh, this is the Eastern meditation. And he says that the Eastern meditation, or the, the people meditating in the East, they, they somehow they don't focus on the external. So they can somehow just go internal and go away from the external world in the meditative pro process. Because there, this is not discriminatory, discriminatory. Whereas in the Western, the Western mind always needs to focus on something, put something before others. So it's, there's a kind of discrimination of objects. And this is, and he says the only form that can somehow compare to the Eastern meditation the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. Now, this is interesting because it gives us, Meister Eckhart, he gives us the example of the Devotio Moderna, very important for him, Thomas Akempis, who also plays a role in the, in his, in the Black Books and in the Liber Novus. So, and as we know, St. Ignatius is comes out of the Devotio Moderna. He's not part of it, but he's the priest in the monastery that, that, or that, uh, that was there before Ignatius came in Montserrat. He was, he brought this from the north. He brought the, the ideas of the Devotio Moderna to, to stay. And uh, this is where Ignatius got in contact. The name was Cisneros. So that's, that's where the idea of meditation comes in. But the difference that Jung makes between the meditation of the Devotio Moderna and the meditation of Ignatius of Loyola is the, the regime, the kind of structure, the, the way that Ignatius tries to provide a method uh, that you follow and you have to do this in that way. You have to do this in the four weeks that they have to do it in a certain way. There's, according to Jung, there's no, not a lot of space for individual development of the meditative and of 
and engaging with the materials uh, in an individual way, which he sees with the with Cisnerosa, with Thomas Akempis or others, uh, where he says oh, there's much more freedom. This has, of course, to do with Jung's preference of the mystical experience of God. Uh, that's where Meister Eckert, Eckert plays such an important role. And that he can't see in Ignatius. So Ignatius was a Basque nobleman born in around 1490 and 1491 and died in 1556. He was, while, while defending the city of Pamplona, he got injured and during the process of recovery, he started to have a kind of an interest in, in Christian saints. He has a, has a book about this and he starts to become to feel a kind of spiritual need that continues with a, with a series of visions that, that he has in the next, next part of his life. And these visions we know about in, uh, in, in, his, in his semi-autobiography, Reminiscences, that how, how he bit by bit gets this kind of spiritual how this spiritual conversation happens. And that is basically this, this kind of visions that he has. They are most interesting to Jung. That is, that is what a lot of the seminar deals with. The lecture series is very interested into the biographical aspects of Ignatius' life. So there's, and in particular, these visions. It's very interesting in and there's a very detailed analysis of the Anima Christi, a prayer that is usually said before the beginning of the exercises, but it is, it is actually not an original part of the exercises. So that, that is something that Jung probably misunderstood when he, when he read, read Erich Pfarrer. A theologian, a theologian who wrote a book on the Ignatius on the exercises called Three Volumes Deus Semper Major. And he, the first part of the book, that the one, the first volume, the one Jung read, is heavily interested in the anima Christi and that and he follows that. So this is, this is the, the, the second part. And then you, Jung looks deeper and deeper in a deeper way at the first week of the exercise. The exercise is usually at four weeks. The first week that has to deal a lot with the question of repentance, sin, so where Jung can link it to the question of, of shadow work. So that, that is, that, that, and then he talks a lot about this, this relationship. You know, and he also is interested in the, in the similarity between what he calls active imagination and the part of the exercises where, where you are asked to use all your senses and all your mind and your feelings and your senses to imagine yourself in certain situations of the life of Christ or of the, in the, in the second week or in the first week, there's one part where you, where you ask to concentrate on, on what happens to people if they condemn, if they don't, if they don't repent. So Jung, Jung has a cousin, has a, Jesuit manual, Jesuit book from very early onwards, where with depictions of hell and sin and, and what have you. And Jung is, uh, is making this point very clear. So you have to smell everything, you have to see it, you have to feel the burning. And then so that for sure not what the spiritual exercises are meant to, to do. But uh, that, that, that is kind of this view of negative or this kind of depiction of what the 
Jesuits do. That is something that we find also already in the, in the literature that Jung chose is. We find it in his, in his background. So, of course, Jung coming from a Swiss pastoral, pastoral, pastoral background, his father was a reformed pastor. And the, the idea of the Jesuits being the spearhead of the counter-reformation, the, the negativity that comes with that image. And then in the, in the Kulturkampf in Germany and then where Jesuits were not allowed to have to settle down in Germany or in Switzerland also, they were not allowed to congregate in Switzerland at the time when Jung was born and up to the 1930s and longer. So even so that in the 1930s when, when Olga Fröber Kaptein wants to invite Jesuit, Jung was in, in, in prominent Jesuit and brother of Karl Rahner, who then spoke at Rahner's conference, but also they went, they went contact as a correspondence between Jung and Hugo Rahner. Very interesting correspondence about the yeah. early Christian, the, the church fathers and, and patriarchal text. Olga Pröber-Pakaptein wants to invite, and he writes, to, we have to be careful because there's still this kind of prejudice towards Jesuits. We don't want to come into a certain light and, and so on. But that, that kind of background is there. And that we know from Jung's very early, early, early memories. So one of the first, first things that we have in memories, dreams, reflection, Jung's semi-autobiography, and is actually this fear that he talks about when he overhears one day his father and his family members talking about the Jesuits and how dangerous they were and so on. And then he sees one day a priest coming into the village in a, what he thinks is a Jesuit, close to the Jesuit. And he has this, this horrible fear of, of, of connected with that in his little mind. So he, and that is one of the first things that we, that we know. And then he goes on and says, until the night, until many, many years later, when I was in Vienna and St. Stephen's, I was always connecting the Catholic Church and the, with the Jesuits and with and sacrifice. And so this is a, a very interesting personal feeling that he has connected to the Jesuits and to Catholicism. Later on, that changes completely. He is a very is really interested in, in Roman Catholicism. Yes, after the after 1945, he meets with a lot of, of priests and theologians, and that, that changes. But in the 1930s, there's still this kind of background that we have to see when he's talking about this and he's using the translation of Philip Funk, who belonged to the modernists within the Catholic Church and was excommunicated and had to leave the Catholic Church. He invites, invited uh, uh, to Ernesto Bonaiuti, who wrote the Modernist Manifest and was also excommunicated. And did they ask him to talk about the exercise, spiritual exercises at Eranos? So this is somehow the the text that he looks at, uh, the people he surrounds himself with, at that time, they had a certain kind of anti-Catholic agenda, if this is a one, so at least in the ones that I mentioned. So there's a kind of negative image already presented towards, towards Ignatius and the exercises that somehow reads through the lines when we when we when we look at these at these lectures of of, of Jung. Yeah. And we said this sudden shift from having spent time in the end of the 1930s on Eastern practices 
of imaginary practices, practice meditation practices. And there is this sudden shift to, to decide to, to dive into something Western, to St. Ignatius, to something European. And we know that when Jung came back from, and when, when Jung went to India, that he had that important dream that he shares in MDR about the Holy Grail, that he has to save the Holy Grail in that dream. And he, he sees that dream as somehow that he needs to come back to Europe and focus his attention again to matters closer to his own culture. I'm just wondering how you see this sudden shift, if you if you also see that having to do with that dream that you had, which he shares in MDR about shifting focus in a way or returning back to the West, or is there other reasons that you might see that he suddenly picks up and yeah, St. Ignatius and decides to, to put his attention there? I think you're quite right to, to, to mention that, that dream. I I don't I, I don't really I don't I can't I, I don't really have an answer to that. Maybe it has to do with the experiences that he had in India. So maybe there is this as I said in India it seems to me that he's taking this text from Torneos with him, is looking at that during his time, is doing alchemic alchemical excerpts at the same time is going into the Indian temples and so that is a kind of interesting split if you want so there are two things that he's doing at the same time and he tries to bring them together in I assume but then there is one incident shortly before he he gets ill in falls ill in, in Calcutta when he's visiting temple uh, dedicated to the worship of Kali, and he sees, and he sees these blood sacrifices, and he sees this, this, yeah, he sees, he smells it. Everything is red. He says, yes, and it, it somehow must have had such an impact that he, he almost breaks down there. So and we know this from Father McCormick, who was there with him. And Jung somehow links that with his, with the illness that he, that he has the next day and he falls very ill. He thinks, and he sees there something, he sees there some kind of connected with evil. He said, yep, there's pure evil that I saw in this red, in this, in this. There was something that was highly disturbing for Jung in this. In and on the other hand, Jung says, you have to, Put your finger on those things, press your finger on those things that that cause that kind of feelings. So there's an, there's an interesting passage in in the Nietzsche's Zarathustra, so and it's in a seminar on Nietzsche's Zarathustra on the chapter of the pale criminal. And Jung says, I never liked that chapter. There's something very, very disturbing in this, in this, in this chapter. And I recommend to everyone who comes across a section or a part that has provoked such a feeling in you or some kind of reaction in you that you have to put your, press your finger precisely on that section and look at it and see why is that so disturbed. Interesting enough, it does not do this in the seminar. So it's not, it's not talking about this and why it is disturbing to him personally. Anyway, coming back to the Indian experience of the Kali temple, I saw her is coming back then and is doing the seminar on Eastern on Eastern meditation, and is somehow reflecting via his notebooks on on things that he has seen there. And might it also be the case that this experience told him actually to to connect. Maybe more with with the with the with the Western tradition that he was brought up. So we know also that a similar argument he made already before that, when he said yoga and, and the West, and he said, don't don't try to emulate or to to practice the same way that Eastern 
practitioners of yoga do it because it's not your tradition. Stick to what where you come from. And because here are your roots, no? that's what he's saying. No? A similar argument he makes when Richard Wilhelm dies. And there's, it's, I think he's completely wrong about this. But he says somehow, yeah, because he is somehow, because William was a missionary, a very devoted Christian. And yeah, because he went to the East and he was so influenced by these Eastern priests and, and, and Confucius ideas that this disconnect when he came back to Germany with Christianity somehow caused problems to problems and, and would finally lead to his death. So then I think this is, it is not fair to Wilhelm, but, but, but it is in the same kind of line of argument when he says, oh yeah, and actually you have stick with your roots and Maybe, maybe uh, this, is, this is what provokes this sudden shift. But I, I, it is really interesting because you would think he's finishing the lecture series of that term. But it, it, it's, it's very sudden that in the midst of June, he said, no. So now we're jumping to the, to the Western form of meditation and we start with Ignatius. So when he starts in 1933, he somehow wants to situate his lectures. Oh no, he wants to, to give a kind of summary, a summary and an introduction to what he has done so far. So he situates that uh, analytical psychology within the context of the history of psychology. That's the very first uh, lecture series, which is uh, most interesting. The next lectures, he gives an introduction typology. In his typology, he, he outlines the main concept of analytical psychology. All of this occupies him the first years. The, the lecture series later on, when he talks about the individuation process, seem to have a different quality. This is not a talk, it doesn't take a case study and explain certain methods of analytical psychology. No, he, he's very much in this domain of comparative studies. So that, that is something which, which Jung, since his, since his personal experiences during the black book phase, his visions, so his experiences of the archetypes. So somehow after the decades afterwards, are there first to conceptualize this, to give a kind of method to something that doesn't have a method necessarily, but to make it understand and comprehensible to people who will then practice analytical psychology and then this form of therapy. He also wants to show that this archetypes that he has experienced, of course, he needs to show that something that are not particular only of interest, not particular to his culture and his context, but that is something that you can find in Eastern cultures, Eastern spirituality, as well as in Western spirituality, as well as in alchemy. So this is the, this is what he wants to show, what he focuses on. And therefore these three lectures are somehow unique in, in the way they present material that you don't have in other, in other periods of his theoretical engagement. So exercises, spiritual exercises. This is the only time that he really talks about them in that detail. The Amidana Dhyana Sutra, he actually uses later in 1943 for another presentation, but it's all coming from the lecture series. Text in that way, this is the most detailed as we have here as, as the Yoga Sutra. The alchemy material that 
leads that to to his later work. So that is then used at certain points. But it's a very useful tool, this lecture series, the final one, to start to understand where you comes from when he uses alchemy and what's what what is interest in alchemy. And I, and, and I heard you say, and I, I know that you emphasize in your introduction that there's also a, a more personal level to to these lectures on Sancti Ignatius of Loyola, which has to do with him indirectly, you're, you're saying, making comparisons between Loyola's visions that has been accounted for in the in this reminiscences in the autobiography mm -hmm. and Jung's own visions in 1913. And specifically, you talk about Jung's active imagination or vision of being crucified or being on the cross and meeting Saloma. Carl Gustav Jung, December 25th, 1913. I see the cross and Christ on it in his last hour in torment. At the foot of the cross the black serpent coils itself. It has wound itself around my feet. I am held fast, and I spread my arms wide. Salome draws near. The serpent has wound itself around my whole body, and my countenance is that of a lion. Salome says, Mary was the mother of Christ. Do you understand? I see that a terrible and incomprehensible power forces me to imitate the Lord in his final torment. But how can I presume to call Mary my mother? You are Christ, Salome says. I stand with outstretched arms like someone crucified, my body taut and horribly entwined by the serpent. You, Salome, Say that I am Christ? It is as if I stood alone on a high mountain with stiff, outstretched arms. The serpent squeezes my body in its terrible coils, and the blood streams from my body, spilling down the mountainside. Salome bends down to my feet and wraps her black hair round them. She lies thus for a long time. Then she cries, I see the light. Truly, she sees, her eyes are open. The serpent falls from my body and lies languidly on the ground. I stride over it and kneel at the feet of the prophet, whose form shines like a flame. I mentioned before Ignatius and the, the visions that he experienced. And there is a certain, there's a series of visions where Ignatius sees the cross and somehow above the cross, there's some kind of entity. And every time he, he, he sees that, he feels, he feels good. He feels as if he thinks that this thought, that this vision is wonderful and so on. I don't have eyes, but this, this this series of visions continues, and one day this this entity reveals himself as a serpent, and for Ignatius, it's quite clear that this was the devil. This was the that was the other side, so, and. It is said that later on he always had a stick with him, so once this serpent would appear, he would just chase it away. But for Jung, of course, the the idea of the serpent on the cross is something that he's, he's very interested in. So that is something that he, he has in his own vision, as you said, experienced when tells him that he is Christ, that he is actually crucified on the cross and, and the serpent coils around the, the, the cross. Of course, there are other 
traditions and we know from the Mitras cults and there's also a cross and there's the, the serpent around the cross. It's not only Christianity that Ignatius who has this kind of idea. But what's, what's interesting here is also that the, the main research literature I mentioned before that he uses is the first volume of Deus Semper Major of Erich Schwaran. And this is an interesting book. So Schwaran was this Jesuit theologian. He presented the idea of the Analogia Entis. And he is the kind of main representative of that theory in the 20th century. He was quite renowned, quite well known. He, he and Karl Barth, so it's on the Protestant side, they would regularly have conversation with each other, of course not agreeing, but just to give you a kind of level on which Schwara as a theologian was in the 1930s. Unfortunately, one can also say that he was a, was a victim of the, of the national socialism and the way he was he was treated in the, in the 1930s. He never really, in Germany, he never really recovered well, it is said. But in this book is a kind of, it's an interesting way that Schwara writes. It's on one hand, it looks like a meditation. You think it's a meditation on the exercitia spiritualia or the way that it should be. But then there's a lot of references that he doesn't give you, a lot of references. Aquinas, a lot of, a lot of theological knowledge that you would need to, to go through that text. So it's a very difficult text. But what Trana talks about at a certain point is he meditates on the cross. So he talks about the cross and he talks about the, the tension between the, the above and the below, between the good and the evil between the spirit and the flesh and uh, how in the human being there's a kind of gap opening and, and the human being somehow being torn apart between these different opposites needs to bring them together. So when he is following Christ, or is on the, the individual is on the cross, then is somehow uniting this tension, holding it together and, and healing the gap that has been opened through the thing. And that idea that Schwara talks about here, of course, when you read this, it must have had some kind of impact and would remind him on precisely the same experience that he had as a, as a vision. And so the idea that the unions need to be brought, to the, the opposite needs to be united and that in the middle of that cross point is the human being. In that case, it's Jung himself in this vision, bringing these things, this opposite together. So therefore, I, I assume that Schwara's meditation on, on the... Anima Christi, in that case, and on the exercise of spirit of Ignacio Loyola, has this personal connection with Jung's vision. Yeah, and then when you're writing about that in your introduction, you, you, do, you do bring in some, I don't know if I should call it interpretation, but you do discuss these two visions, how they relate and how they differ. But you also speak about this interpretation of Ignatius visions and how they relate to, to a moral struggle. Is there something more you, you can say about that? Isn't it the case that Jung also sees, let's say, the visions of Ignatius as that he cannot, that Ignatius has not fully understood the message in a way, or that Ignatius has not fully integrated this, while it seems to me in that text in the introduction that you're making a point about the quest of a moral judgment in this situation of being crucified. I think you, the point that you makes is what I, what I said at the beginning is that Ignatius coming from a 
certain tradition and being a Christian and being familiar with the dogmas of Christianity gives a certain interpretation of these visions that is in accordance with the church teaching. And that for Jung prevents him of understanding and connecting to this, these images that he sees before him. So he made the talks that is a lot about the question about the symbol of the serpent. And he said, yeah, it was for Ignatius, it was immediately clear that that is the evil one, the, the serpent. It can't be anything else. But then Jung says, even if you're familiar with the Bible, you might find the, in Exodus the, the, the portion where Moses put up a stick and put a snake on, on top and says, Oh, if you look at that snake, you will not be bitten by the snakes in the desert. So, and Christ then later refers to this passage uh, in the in the gospel. So, so that there is a kind of healing aspect to the serpent that we have in the with Asclepius that we have with the Kundalini yoga. The idea of the serpent that is lying dormant in the Muladhara chakra and then is awakened. So he says if, if Ignatius would have been aware of, of these aspects, then he could have linked with a certain part of himself. And that is the healing part. He was in a healing process. His body was healing. The ser after this injury, the serpents are indicated according to Jung, the healing process and not necessarily the evil one threatening him spiritually in his, in his spirituality. So, so there is a certain kind of what Jung calls Prejudiced view because he's following always the dogmas of the church. So, what I'm arguing in the in the book, in the introduction, summer, is there a certain dogma that Jung is following in his in his reading? So, is there a kind of scientific dogma that Jung is 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 following? Is there a kind of prejudice that he has when he's interpreting his visions. So it's the kind of at the end of the day, the second layer of the of the of the red book of the Liber Novus, what is it doing? Is trying to make some kind of to give meaning to his visions within a kind of rational scientific context. What is it doing when it's later on trying to conceptualize certain experiences that he has? Is there a kind of a kind of dogmatic structure that is, is at the base of the way he views his experiences? So is he so much different different to Ignatius? Is the so he's not Jung, a child of his time, in the same way as Ignatius was. That is that was my my question. I'm not I'm not saying that I know the answer. I was just presenting that in a way to something that people when they read these things, they might also look at that and maybe find an answer for themselves. But it's just a suggestion how to read these things. I find it very interesting and very insightful. I mean, a full introduction, surely. But when you also allow yourself to, yeah, to present these thoughts, you're writing there in the end of the introduction. And just to clarify what you already said, actually, that through this interpretation of Ignatius' visions, Jung was able to claim that Ignatius had been too dogmatic to reconcile the two visions. Jung instead had embraced the venomous serpent 
to tempting pleasure in the appearance of Salome and had reconciled it with the healing power of the cross, hence reaching a high state through the union of the opposites. So there is this sort of, maybe not competition, but yeah, there is some question of who's most enlightened or who has brought the opposites together. But also based on just on what you said, that I think it's, it's another sentence there that from the introduction where you say about Jung that he tried hard to appease his visionary experiences with modern science in the same way as Ignatius tried to do with the Christian dogma. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's true. At the time then of, of, of preparing the seminars, especially then as Jung is diving deep into the anima Christi meditation or prayer of Ignatius, as well as Fivara's meditation on it, that's when Jung has his own, an own vision of Christ, yeah? A vision of Christ, you waking up in the night and have a vision of Christ on the cross or a cross. And he shares this with Angela Yasser and it's, it's in memory streams and reflections. And you start your introduction by quoting that vision that Jung has as he's preparing these lectures of a Christ on the cross and, and, and specific color. C.G. Jung, 27th June. 1957. When I was engrossed with psychology and alchemy, no, to be more precise, it was when I was giving the seminar on Ignatius of Loyola. Once, in the night, I had a vision of Christ. One night I awoke and there, at the foot of the bed, I saw a crucifix, not quite life-sized. It was very clear and couched in a bright light. In this light, Christ was hanging on the cross, and then I saw that it was as if his entire body were made of gold, as if of green gold. It looked wonderful. I was scared to death by it. Just then, I was particularly engrossed by the Anima Christi, Prayer. There is a very beautiful meditation by Ignatius on it. I was wondering if you could say something more about this vision or, or, or something about how you yourself understand that having spent so much time with this. To be honest, it, it's such a beautiful, beautiful vision that, that I think I say about this somehow would be... Diminishing. I, I, I don't think that this means this needs my interpretation. It was just, therefore, we also decided to put it at the beginning of the introduction, so very prominent in the book, and to open up with that. But as you will notice, I'm not then following this up with an, with an interpretation of it. So, this is very speculative, but, and somehow diminishing the wonderful expression that is, that is of this, of this vision. So therefore, I, I think I, I let it to you and the listeners to, to see, to interpret this, or to let it work then. It just tells you how maybe this how deeply influenced, I don't like the word influenced, how, how affected Jung was and how his soul was while working through this, this text of Ignatius and it, that this had some impact on him personally. And I think it goes back to what we said before about bringing things together, uniting the opposite, making, somehow going back to these experiences that he had, his own visions and how they are reflected again in, in Ignatius and, 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 and the interpretation of Pfarrer. And so it, it was something 
deeply personal here. There was something working. That that's that's maybe what one can can say much more so than when he talks in the first lectures about the diagnostic association studies. <laughs> There's a different quality, personal quality in these lectures. When you read it through that angle, they tell you maybe a lot about Jung and about him personally, as well as about his theory of active imagination and uh, individualization mm. process. Right, yes. And I mean, Jung is not, uh, he's not concerned about giving his own interpretation of this vision. He has his own, he shares it inter his interpretation in Memories, Dreams, Reflection. Oh, yeah. I think yes. I, I brought it up here. He says that if I hadn't been so struck by the greenish gold, I would have been tempted to assume that something essential was missing from my Christian view. In other words, that my traditional Christ image was somehow inadequate. And I, and I still had to catch up with part of the Christian development. And I mean, what strikes me is just this, the fear, also the beauty, but also the fear that you're experiencing, if not terror, with, it's not only a, a vision of beauty, his emotional response is even only fear. Yeah, no, and if you, if you read Rudolf Otto's book on the das Heilige, Sacred takes this idea of the luminous character of, of God. So that that has there is this idea of fear on one hand and rev, reverence on the other. So it's it's both. And so along those lines of this understanding of the of the sacred, in the along the lines of luminous understanding, I think with absolutely sense that. This vision of beauty and of wholeness also has a kind of a kind of fear. I think it's the word fear. Maybe is not is not the right right expression. In the German in the German translation of the Bible, the Luther translation, you have always this idea of, of the. The Furcht for God, no? the Furcht, so kind of, but the, 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 the connotation of that is very often respect, much more so than, than a kind of existential fear. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, Jung has no fear when it comes to interpreting others' visions or like not his visions. He, he's making statements of something very, private and personal. And I, I think in your introduction, you're, you're, you're holding, you're holding these experiences and, you know, in such a respectful way. Again, you're as, the, as an editor, it's, it's really a, a, a beautiful introduction and I, it still works in me. But you also allow yourself to make some statements that I find interesting. Maybe you call them speculative, but I, I find it interesting. You say, for example, in the introduction that after Jung's scrutinies, after Jung written scrutinies in the Red Book, you say that what has also become clear at this stage is that Jung's reuniting God is not the Christian God Chivara is talking about in Deus Semper Mario. Yeah, yeah. But if you think about his his experience of Abraxas and the God that encapsulates the good and the evil that brings together the evil and the sumum bonum. And we have this whole debate with Victor White in the later years about money and the question of what is evil. And, and Jung, Jung's God image that he has is in that respect bringing the evil together and making a part of his God, of his personal God. And here, that is where I wanted to say he diverts from a Christian view of God. And that's, and there it becomes much more, they say, 
Gnostic in, in a lot of ways in his in his vision of 1917 in, when he was at the military service in, in the Swiss Alps. Then Farnes comes up as the kind of counterbalance to a Brexit. So then it gets even, even wider, the whole cosmological idea, spiritual idea of Jung. So here, the union of the opposites is much, is much is, is understood in a different way than when, when, when Shara talks about holding the tension of the cross and suffering like Christ by, by being at the crossroads between good and evil and spiritual and carnal. So that somehow it's a different context. It's a different way to understand 